This episode of the Hardware Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Entopology, which makes a new kind of CAD software for industrial additive manufacturing. Their element software generates complex 3D lattices, which can be used in 3D printed parts for everything from rocket ships to medical implants to sneaker midsoles. This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Rob Chandok, who's the president of Helium. This is a startup that's creating a, a new way of connecting lots and lots of devices to each other and to the internet. Welcome, Rob. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Is that an accurate way of putting it? I think so. I mean, the, the sort of the tagline for the company is make sense of your things. I, I would say in the overblown taxonomy that we have of IoT, we're really focused on sensing and control. So thinking about how do I get the data of the real world into systems and how do I use tools that are more modern than seeing assembler and the same thing mm. I was using when I was at Carnegie Mellon a right. long time ago, longer than I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so so what is the actual product that you guys are making? The core of it is a platform for actually being a runtime for connecting, sensing, and control elements to the internet. And by that, I mean that we think pretty hard about what is the whole system top to bottom that goes from the edge of the thing that you might want to sense, whether it be temperature or humidity or you know volatile gases or, or vibration, anything. How do I turn that into a form where I can manipulate it and quickly innovate on that information. And it's not just a big data problem. It actually has to do with the physical world. Like, how do I get that data if I can't run a power cable or a network connection to it? So we focus on wirelessly connected battery powered. How do I code the algorithms? I don't want to, every time I want to change the algorithm on that sensor, go reflash it like the, in the, I will say, the olden days. And then how do I bring that into the modern software world? So how do I turn that into RESTful APIs that everybody can consume? And that's sort of the core of Helium. On top of that, we've built solutions for particular applications because, hey, we're a startup and nobody's going to say, hey, we'll use that Helium platform. It looks good, right? <laughs> yeah. So we have to prove to you know ourselves and we certainly learn by doing. And our, our biggest uh, solution right now, which we call Pulse, um, is, is about monitoring and alerting based on these kinds of sensing. Before we go into the technical details, a general question. I feel like uh, there's a lot of skepticism from the kind of old school embedded systems and, and controls engineers about the idea that uh, embedded systems and controls could ever be easy. Do you think that, that, they, that they always have to be hard programmed in C and assembly and like executed by people who just breathe this stuff? Or, or do you see it actually becoming an easier thing that you can kind of like snap together the way that a JavaScript developer would with, with APIs? Well, there might be something in between those two extremes and not not saying anything about JavaScript developers or anything like that, but there's <laughs> there's sort of a, there's a, the way I sort of divide it up is there's a thing that I sometimes call a double E wall. And the double E wall, if you think about it in, in I, you know, I used to think about this a lot. I was at Qualcomm for 15 years working in mobile. And if you watch what feature phone to smartphone transition happened, you had this place in the beginning where on a feature phone, if you wanted a piece of software in a phone 
1998 or pretty much into the early 2000s, you had to get Nokia or Motorola or, or I mean, Samsung and LG weren't even around then mm-hmm. on that, on the, in that, playing in that ballpark that way. It had to go in from the beginning. So like, I don't, it had a Nokia phone, it had snakes on it. That was it. it had to be that was the game. Mm-hmm. That was the game. It was and a great game though, to be fair. Right. Be- Sorry to cut you off. Let it go, go on. Yeah, yeah no, no, snakes was really fun. Um, I was actually, it was, I was surprised they didn't port Adventure, but um, yeah, <laughs> Zork. Yeah, yeah, Zork, exactly. You are in a maze of twisty passages. Oh. And, um, these are the best the best games of twocows.com, yeah, right, which yeah, I exactly. used to visit in the late 90s to yeah, download right. my Palm Pilot games. So we won't talk about that. I played that on a Vax 11750, right? So, <laughs> um, so there's, there's that side. And then on the other side of the world, you have this world that is really driven by computer science. So we think about things like, why is it straightforward us to think about using machine learning and big data analytics? It's because we're standing on the shoulder of a lot of computer science. And the two worlds, there generally was this delineation. So, so you're talking about like sort of on one hand, general purpose computing, which is like, you know, I can write a program and put it on something and, you know, we're going to figure out how this works versus companies that are making devices, which are kind of standalone and so not meant to be platforms. So like if you wanted to have a specific kind of software put into it, you'd have to get in a deal with Nokia or whoever at the beginning while they were developing those devices because it was not a general purpose computer. Yeah, it's it's little, maybe less about general purpose computing than it is about tools. Because it has to do with the, the EE and the hardware that goes into the development of such right. things. Right, There's a, there's a mythology now that you still have to be counting clock cycles and and doing hard real time when in reality, you know, the reason we don't do that anymore in a lot of other parts of our software system is we've got enough compute power around, we've got enough memory around, the world has sort of moved on. And one of the things that Helium is about is we're trying to, we have a team that is sort of blended between hardcore distributed systems, computer science people, people that build big distributed internet scale databases and and systems, and folks that actually understand radio and hardware. And we're trying to break down that wall ourselves so that our own system can move fast. Because it's in the end, the point I'm trying to get across is that we want people to be able to innovate quickly, right? So if you think about the person that can't be convinced, it's because they think they have to write the whole system from scratch. They think the way you design a system, they, and I, I, I can say some of this stuff because I have a double A degree. You know, the process there is, oh, you want to build this sensor. Okay, I'm going to go to the catalog and I'm going to, I'm going to basically see if I want to use this thing from Freescale or from Atmel or from somebody. And so I pick from a catalog of 500 parts and then I narrow it down and I pick which RTOS I'm going to use and then I build everything from scratch. And I, and I start this, it's almost like handcrafted in Brooklyn uh-huh. kind of approach uh-huh. to uh-huh. electronics, exactly. which is where mobile phones were when they were feature phones. Now uh-huh. flip the value change to... Google with, let's just use Android, not even talk about iOS, all of a sudden the value chain is different because I can take almost any kind of chip, whether it be from Qualcomm or NVIDIA or anything like Mm -hmm. that, and it can be an Android phone. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. fundamentally changed the business. And we think the same thing's going to happen at the edge of the network. We do think there are differences between that and smartphones. So we don't think, like I don't think about IoT as automotive because I think of that is basically unlimited power and compute you could put into a car. It's a smartphone on wheels or even more. But there are still things in the physical world that have to be battery powered and they need to be wirelessly connected. And mm-hmm. it's because if they aren't, it's too expensive to use them, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Well, mm-hmm. this is the thing though, right? Is that I feel like in designing sensor networks, it can be kind of a challenge because you do need to have some knowledge of the software and website as well as the hardware side. Because like, if you want to read your sensor at a really, really, really fast rate, um, then you're going to exhaust the batteries and you know, it might, depending on where you put the sensor R is, it might be kind of a pain in the butt to go back and do it. So I feel like when, when people are doing these things, like they do need to have some kind of knowledge between both, both domains. Right. And, and great, it's a great point. And it's exactly one of the reasons that Helium exists is mm-hmm. that if you want to do that 
compute so that you want to save battery because the most expensive thing that you can do on that little edge sensor is turn on the radio. Yep. Mm -hmm. Computing mm -hmm. is so cheap in comparison from a power perspective. So our model is that you, as over time, you actually learn and push more of the compute to the edge Mm -hmm. so that you turn on the radio less and you can huh. and you can change that behavior over time so think of it as as i learn and i might use big data in the cloud to do this i push smarter programs out to the edge right. and they optimize the behavior but what i want to do is a model more like app downloading than reflashing the entire image which is actually an expensive thing to do both time and test and yeah, right. and everything like that it's, it gets fragile so we sandbox a scripting environment even on a little tiny m4 class processor so you can't crash the sensor but you can change its behavior quite dramatically for the purpose that you're using it for. You can do it remotely. Over the air, yeah. So it's all it's all also about programming large. That's the other thing I would sometimes say between um, sort of the doubly approach to software and the computer science approach to software is scale. Mm -hmm. The doubly mm -hmm. sets out to, in my opinion, a lot of these systems are designed so that the device works, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The modem, the device yeah. driver, the keyboard, whereas the computer scientist wants the system to work. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that electrical engineers and don't do systems because they do, yeah. they do incredibly yeah. large scale systems. But I'm just commenting on the sort of the mythology of, oh, I can prototype it on Arduino and then I can deploy a million oh, of them. There's and a very, very there's yeah. huge difference. Mythology there. is a good term for huge. that. Huge. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> so, yeah. So describe the, the kind of the Helium ecosystem. You guys are making the, the sensors and the radios and the platform? Right. So right now we're doing the full stack because we're trying to enable the system. So you can think of our sensors hardware as a reference design to some degree. It's mm -hmm. commercial quality reference design. But like with our, an enclosure and, and everything? Yep. Yeah. And we've, we've just, we're just putting out, and you'll see us put out pictures of it soon, of new plastics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the first one we've been playing with was an off-the-shelf box. But the important part of it is we designed the hardware to be basically pluggable in a, a way that still could be commercial quality. So our radio module is already FCC certified, so we don't have to go through recertification. The board that has the, basically the equivalent of a motherboard and a sort of daughter card architecture. So everything about that runtime we just talked about is embodied on a, a, a standard reference design. If you want to go make a different one and that's fine, mm -hmm. but that the, our runtime runs on top of that. And you're talking about the, the firmware that's in the micro that right. lives inside so, your so thing. in the apps process in the M4 class mm -hmm. Cortex, Cortex M4, M4. Okay. yeah, yeah, um, which is a really nice chip, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it, well, that's so. This is like just to diverge a little bit. This sets us apart from a little bit of other people's approach to it, and that we don't think the problem is I need to push Linux or a new operating system. Yeah. It's what's the runtime. Android wasn't cool because it was Linux. Android was cool because of the Android framework. It happened to use exactly. Linux so that they could... Right, right, right. Why, why, why would they write another operating system? Right, but it's not the Linux uh, that makes levers cool. that developers are pulling all the time. That's mm -hmm. correct. Yeah. When you want to do monetization, when you want to download, the services are, implement, are part of the framework, and that's the way we think of the problem. So then we also built an architecture that makes it easy for you to basically replace a little tiny bit of the hardware to turn that thing into a different kind of sensor. So we already have three, two that are out, three... Four, two more that are in the pipeline that will be out soon. The first one was one that we built specifically for monitoring refrigeration. So it's a temperature probe and a door contact sensor that we mm -hmm. put on a refrigerator. And so you can do things like correlate, oh, the temperature's going up because the door is open, which for some reason nobody else does. We haven't. We thought other <laughs> people would have done that, but nobody combined the two that way, uh -huh. actually. Well, it's funny because if you, if you think about the, just look at like the block diagram of a system like this, it looks very similar to like an Arduino and some shields or like an RF Duino or something like that, right? You have like a you have like a microcontroller with some code running on it with like an extra little daughter board that you plug onto the top of it. But I think that there's something in the design of like the way that the whole system fits together that actually really strongly delineates whether or not you would use it 
for this purpose? Because I mean, like you said, no one's going to use an Arduino and a shield for this kind of thing because you got to have more stuff and you got to have the firmware that's running on it that knows how to talk to all the sensors. I mean, that's actually, I mean, there's there's folks here in the city that uh, that run incubators that do hardware, you know, the Lemnos Lab guys and, mm -hmm. and stuff. And, you know, I've, I've seen Eric Klein talk about this and say that, you know, the, the problem is people will come in with that and they don't realize the gap between their prototype on their Arduino and a commercial hardware design is mm -hmm. is is very large and they spend too much of their time doing that. And that's kind of where healing wants to fit into there. Yeah. So even though it sounds the same, one of the things we did and, you know, first thing you teach people when they talk about product design is it's not what you do, it's what you don't do mm -hmm. that makes a product, is we focused on a particular kind of use case. So we're not a general purpose computing environment. We're yeah. not trying to replace, you know, Docker for IoT mm -hmm. or anything like that. We are processing time series data that interacts with physical sensors. So we deal with interrupts and we deal with polling and we deal with mm -hmm. I squared C mm -hmm. and we turn that into RESTful APIs and JSON, but mm -hmm. we do it in a way that you can program and manipulate the data streams so that you can increase the value of the signal even at the edge before you bother to spend the power right. to send it back. So, so users can tweak the, the firmware that lives on your nodes? I would say it's you, it depends on who you think the user is. Yeah. So to us, the user is the application, the solution provider, right? I mean, if, if you were the programmer that was using the healing platform, you could do that. Right. If you were a, um, a company that was building a monitoring system for... Uh, cryogenic freezers for um, you know human embryos. Yeah, you could use Helium to do everything. You might design the probe that you want to use, and you might design the analytics on the other side. But you don't have to spend any of your time figuring out how to get the data from point A to point B. Yeah, or how to build the hardware that will make that work, be reliable, be secure. All the really annoying uh, stuff. Yeah, which which we yeah, think yeah. of as commodity, but it's actually hard to do right. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So you've abstracted it it down to like. Um, a couple of parameters: how many times you're going to pull the sensor, how many times. Yeah, the and you like get a new sensor and like write a new driver, write a new driver with the sensor, design your own probe, yeah. write the driver for it, plug it in. But you don't have to deal with like the encryption side or the like right. pushing it out right. to the so, and identity side. and all that yeah. stuff. So, so and it, it's interesting that you said by parameterized because that's actually a place where we we do differentiate most. Mm -hmm. so, so let me walk you through the, the, the story that I tell about this. If you, if you want to sort of think about why it's interesting to do stuff at the edge, if you look at the the stuff that's out there that I would argue is designed in the old way is very parameterized. So you start, okay, I'm going to solve the temperature problem. So I'm going to build mm -hmm. this radio-connected temperature monitor, and I'm going to, I want to know the temperature every five minutes, right? So every five minutes I wake up and I blurt it out. Mm -hmm. well, turns out I will run my battery out pretty fast. And we were just trying to design systems that batteries last three years, two AA batteries, three years for sensor, right? Wow. Because in the total cost of ownership of any sensing system, you had 10,000 of these, you don't want to change the batteries. That right, often. right. It's the labor, right? right. To change it's actually the, the truck yeah. roll, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, okay, so, all right, I want to know the data every five minutes, but you know what? I don't really need to know it instantly. I'm willing to tolerate some lag. So I'll tell you what, all right, a system that will read the temperature every five minutes and then every hour wake up and send it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really cool. Except now if a, something goes wrong, I don't find out about it possibly for an hour because there's an hour mm -hmm. of latency built into the system mm -hmm. or a maximum latency of an hour. So then I put in a parameter that says, okay, take the temperature every five minutes, send it every hour, unless it goes outside this range, and I let you set a min and a max. And that's pretty much state of the art for what's out there in a wireless temperature sensor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's different about helium is that thing that says unless can be an arbitrary piece of code. Huh. So I can have a system that over time watches the data of 10,000 refrigerators yeah. or cryogenic freezers or whatever, notices anomalies, can't describe them to a human in a rule, but can write a little program that describes it, and then can push that program out to 10,000 little sensors. And all of a sudden, the hmm. sensors are doing, take it every five minutes, send it every hour, unless this function returns true. Right, right. And that function turns out to be 
extraordinarily accurate and useful, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't have to, and helium doesn't have to predict that function. We just enable the fact that you can iterate as fast at the edge as you do in the cloud. And it's a little bit about trying to sort of break that design pattern of IoT, which is things at the edge are dumb. Mm -hmm. All the magic happens in the cloud. The problem is that doesn't work well in the physical world. Yeah. So the reason people do it that way is it's a lot easier to write JavaScript or Node or yeah. or something in the cloud than because it is to figure out this edge stuff. Because you don't have to think about the power yeah. requirements of of you know incrementing a variable. You know what? I, when I say incrementing a variable, I mean like when you're writing something in like JavaScript yep. or whatever, you don't have to think about like man. I should actually need to be smart and collect all these informations and only transmit them every so often because my radio is going to cost me a ton of battery right. power. And you have to, so that, that's where, you know, electrical engineering domain knowledge is, is required. Yeah. And, and that is out. in yeah. large, large part what frameworks like Android and iOS and even the, the, the laptop desktops. The big difference between Windows 7 and Windows 8, one of the big differences, there were plenty, was that the way you did background processing in Windows changed. Windows 7, anything could wake up the processor. Mm -hmm. You just throw an interrupt and say, I need, I need to run in the background. In Windows 8, you could say, I would like to run in the background. And the operating system will then group it together. And that's how you started to be able to get a Windows-based tablet. Because mm -hmm. before that, the sort of the assumption was that you're a PC that was plugged in. Yeah. Right? And so you had to start modeling. That's why the, the sort of phone operating systems, we learned a lot from them. But before, just like you were, you were pointing out, you had to actually know that stuff. When we were running phone software, in, in you know, 2000s, when we were first starting thinking about downloading software on them in this brew project at, at Qualcomm, we had to do that managing the data transfer, right? Mm -hmm. We actually thought about, okay, we have a bunch of applications, they want to send periodic data, or they want to get periodic data, we're going to make them align and synchronize and without them knowing it. And that's when you start to build these layers, just like you said, because then an application developer that's on an iPhone doesn't think about that, but that is going on all the time underneath. So, so in in developing an implementation of a of a helium system, are, are the people doing that completely on the non EE side of the EE divide that you mentioned earlier? So it's just it's just someone who can sort of write code, maybe some machine learning, understands the the structure of the of the system, and that transmitting is expensive and so on. But beyond that, it's it's just abstracted to like the point of writing code. If they're using a sensor that we that's already produced, so like the one sensor we have that does temperature, humidity, pressure. Mm -hmm. ambient light and motion which is a really fun one because it does all five yeah. things in one package uh -huh. we're going to see it a lot in conference rooms and stuff like that you uh -huh. tell the lights on is somebody in there um yes then those people can actually be you could be a, a web developer and actually build a enterprise industrial iot system we're not right. particularly going into consumer right now in terms of channel but what we find is we're also getting the double E's to realize how much it saves them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So we have a, a company that, well, I won't name them yet, but um, that we're working with that is building a parking solution. And one of the things, what they want to measure, what they want to sense is whether a car is in a spot or not. Mm -hmm. I don't have any particular sensor for that. Plus, I don't have an enclosure that they can bury in the asphalt. Mm -hmm. So they designed their daughter card that plugs onto that reference hardware and they are going to fab their own case for it that is going to be embeddable mm. and then all the way out to their application logic is us is yeah. helium mm. and save them you know 10 to 15 person years of effort and uh i don't know eight months to go to market so when that's where it becomes interesting right you can accelerate things so when they're developing their own appliance like that um what is the helium hardware is it a is it just part of a of a design that they're fabbing onto a PCB, or is it a you know a separate module that they're? So I mean, somehow? we basically give them a reference design. Now they can choose to relay out the PCB if they want, mm -hmm. um, but I think in their case they didn't have to. It was small enough, um, but we can send you some pictures of what that motherboard looks like. 
Cool. So it's got that radio module. It's got the... Um, what radio is it using? Uh, it's ITER 215.4. So we use a standard 15.4 physical layer, but we actually do our own Mac that's very, very power efficient. Oh, cool. So, um, and we'll use other physical layers later. Yeah. Like I, when ITER 11 actually delivers on AH, mm -hmm. I'm really, really interested in that. And we're looking at Thread pretty hard too. But Thread's a lot more complicated than our system. And, and you know, for example, we don't do meshing because mm -hmm. meshing takes a lot of power and we were very power sensitive in the applications yeah. that we're thinking about. So what is the what is the um, the distance from edge to to node, from the like the access point to an edge node? Or yeah, we in dense urban uh, probably is the best measure. We can do two or three city blocks. I mean, line of sight radio. It's a silly thing to say. Okay, we do fourteen <laughs> miles if you're out in the middle of Oklahoma. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. uh, but one one of the things that I think is more telling is you know places that we are trialing. So this temperature monitoring solution we're, we're piloting with some um, uh, hospitals actually in the area mm -hmm. and uh, we can cover most floors with one possibly two depending on and those are pretty harsh radio environments because there's a lot of metal mm -hmm. and you look at a zigbee based system they have to have repeaters every 20 feet or something mm -hmm. like that and mm -hmm. to the point where one of the one of the people we we're talking to was complaining because they, they had to put so many zigbee repeaters that they were using up too many electrical outlets <laughs> Wow. So we we thought we we built a very simple secure star-shaped network uh -huh. and then you know tried to basically manage it as you would imagine an enterprise Wi-Fi being managed from the cloud with real, you know, all the things that you think about for a system in the large that just rolls as part of the platform. And then do you do you have like nice nice dashboards and widgets and things like that that can be used to look at what data is coming in? We have a we have our our one solutions application is the main visualization tool we provide. We have a simple dashboard. So part of it is that we're not trying to become the be-all end-all, but it's easy to build dashboards from Oh, cool. It. Yeah. Now, before we hear about Rob's favorite tools, let's talk about our sponsor, Endtopology. When you're using traditional manufacturing methods, you can use traditional CAD tools, because when you're milling or stamping or extruding, you want CAD software that explicitly defines machinable features. But 3D printing is different. That's right, John. When you're using additive manufacturing, you can use variable lattices to really fine-tune the mechanical properties and material usage of your parts. And that's what Intopology's Element software does. With Intopology, you can quickly design parts that are stronger, lighter, and easier to manufacture than ever before. Intopology is a small team of software and hardware engineers in New York that's collaborating with everyone from artists to rocket scientists at the bleeding edge of mechanical design. So if you're interested in seeing what sophisticated lattice design capability can do for your own design process, log on to intopology.com to download a free version of their element software. And I hear they are hiring, so if you're interested in a career in the exciting field of digital fabrication, give them a call. That's N, as in the unbounded complexity of what you can do. Then topology, as in Klein bottles and such, dot com. Now, back to tools. We, it is now time to move on to our tools segment which is where we discuss our favorite tools. Cool tools. And we ask our guest for uh, his or her favorite tools. Mm. These can be any kind of tools. They could be like a, a thing in your garden shed or, you know, an oscilloscope. Any, any tool, really, that helps you do things that you like to do. Yeah. This KeySmart thing is one of my favorite tools right now, which lets me carry my keys in my little oh, that's cool. pocket. So I have three keys in there in my apartment fob. and uh, It's like a little Swiss Army knife that you put your keys into. Yep. And, keys instead of knives. Yep. And it sort of changed the way I think about carrying access. So don't carry in my car key anymore because I can put that into that little pocket in your jeans. Uh -huh. So I never oh, lose yeah. it. 
right? And that that shocked me that it worked that well. I got it on a whim because somebody pointed it to me. Definitely yeah. from one of the hipster sites. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my wallet's kind of like that. I got a um, this little capsule wallet that's an in- injection molded wallet that's just, you know, it, it, it changed the way that I think about my wallet because it, uh, it, it really puts a hard limit on the amount of crap that I can collect. Yeah, I did it a different way. I just got a really small wallet. <laughs> <laughs> um, does that uh, confuse the TSA ever? Um, actually, I've gone through security with that one because it's not actually that much metal in it. No, it, and if it's in my bag, it's never confused them. Actually. They don't see it in the x-ray and think it might be a Swiss Army knife. Nope. I've, n- I've never had that happen. <clears throat> a friend of mine has been posting on Twitter about how he... Um, uh, he has a Swiss Army knife, and he used a, a laser to engrave it with TSA approved. And uh, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> he says he's gotten through a lot of TSA checkpoints um, by just pointing to it. And yeah, he doesn't and actually. He doesn't say anything. He just yeah. That's it just it, he puts it in the funny. same tray as his keys. Yeah. And the person at the X-ray thing notices it's a Swiss Army knife and looks at it and sees that it is TSA approved. And evidently not a not a problem. Well, it's funny because I bought when the 11 inch MacBook Air came out. I I bought one because one of the main selling points was it's small enough you don't have to take it out of your bag. Mm-hmm. And I eventually just gave up and kept taking out of my bag because the TSA people at the airport like didn't believe me and would get really upset when I left it in my bag. And I would tell them that like it's it is approved by the TSA and they they didn't care. Yeah, no. maybe I should have written TSA approved on it. That that would have gotten you pretty mm-hmm. far, I think. Um, so, and as an electrical engineer, what is your favorite uh, professional tool? Uh, I'm so far removed from doing that right now. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I would say right now, you used to, I used to be able to say things like oscilloscopes and and uh, and JTAG and and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and probably more a good debugger is the, is the best thing. You know, we use our scripting languages based on Lua, so I've been playing around a lot in that environment. Lua, mm-hmm. and also really good. REST API tools, so there's some really, really good ones to to, to play with the API. Why did you guys uh, decide to go with the, the the M4 for your microcontroller? Because that that seems a lot beefier than most most sensor node things that I've seen. Because that's that's the one that has the 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 what is it? It's got the DSP instructions, and it doesn't. Uh, there can be there are variants of it. We use the one that has the floating point, but I don't think we have the DSP ones. Um, I mean, well, look. It, compared to an A7 or an A9 yeah. or any of that class, it's it's actually quite small, but it's not an M, M0. So we're trying yeah. to strike that interesting balance. It's a good good point. It's got a really fast. It's got a really fast clock on it. Right. And we and we actually run our clock down to save power. Yeah, to save mm-hmm. power. And the the thing that we want to be able to do, we want to get to that place where, you're, where you can sort of do bursts of computing. So we want to be too restrictive. The biggest power thing challenge for us is actually you know dynamic memory. Mm-hmm. That so because because leakage current we we want to weigh micro microamps way down in the microamps mm-hmm. to get that kind of battery life. I mean, mm-hmm. it's funny for us when sometimes we see people claiming twenty year battery life on a sensor because the batteries won't last that long. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So yeah. It's, it's purely a projection, right? right. <laughs> they have no idea. Um, because well, I mean, picking your architecture that you're going to build your whole thing around is is a pretty big decision when when designing yeah. some kind of hardware product. Yeah. So. so some so here's the, here's the place where I I want to be I want to be prudent in the present so right now i couldn't take a a7 or a system like if you look at something like brillo for mm-hmm. example which requires linux even a stripped down like still 256 meg yeah. ram we're running in 200k mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so very different profile but i still want to have a modern computing environment lua was happens to be 
exactly designed for that. I mean, mm -hmm. it's used all over the place from really high-end gaming engines, and it's it's actually really appropriate for IoT. So in our in, in Helium, you use the Lua-based scripting with these great primitives we put into it to help you process time series. We use that at the edge and the same scripting environment also in the cloud, so you can learn it once and mm -hmm. and just go on. So part of the answer to your your uh, question and your point about why pick that one is it's the right place to start now but because of the way we structure the software if somebody comes out with a much more powerful but equally power efficient processor because either we move down the processor nodes like we typically have done they thought they were going to be done at 10 but you know we know that we'll go lower than that and especially the 3d like the finfet stuff mm -hmm. and stuff like that we'll, we'll get to the point where the only thing will will be is do i want to pay for that chip that way but I can get the power profile I want. I don't want to have a software environment that's been crippled because I picked a really small processor. Right. So that's the challenge that you have is if you design for like an M0 or you design for an, an M3, like I'm going to use all those specific instructions, that to me is the double E approach to it. I'm going to build an environment that hardware accelerates. I have enough room to work. Right, but I can sort of depend on the program model. So I, you know, we could show you one of the scripts. That's go so the script that we decided on that we've been playing around with for that five unit, the five sensor, Mm -hmm. One of the things we decided that the simple parameters for people to do would be how often to wake up and send the values for each of the sensors, and also a very simple mechanism for that, what we call the escape, which is when is it, when do you want to break out, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, we, and we were able to code that up independently for all these five sensors because underneath it, our runtime does all the scheduling of the tasks and the interrupt queues and all the I.O., so we could think of the business logic for what we really wanted to get to and make it very easy to change. And that wouldn't change if I started running it on a more powerful processor. All I would have all of a sudden is a little more headroom to do more compute. So yeah. my hope is over time, other people you know, will be very successful, will be, will be the Android for IoT. And people, hardware manufacturers, like you know, there's some folks that are doing some really cool stuff with, with um, reconfigurable logic, reprogrammable logic that mm -hmm. does really good low power. So you do most of your... If you know over time, you sort of congeal, or mm -hmm. maybe that's a bad word for software, congealing. <laughs> I'm going with the food theme of yeah. the, of the, yeah. of the no, There's a better, what, what's the, it's like in, the, in when you do circuit, and you're doing circuit light, you, do, you, you use simulated annealing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but you sort of understand over time, and this is, this is the place that we're trying to sort of bust through, which is you don't have to know a priori what the algorithm is. You can learn it over time. And we hope that you can either then use them you can either then re reiterate this or re-implement the software on a more specialized piece of hardware that does it better, sort of the way people will say, okay, I'm going to give you a, a, a GPU-based programming environment, and then as you learn that, I'm going to improve the GPU, but I'm going to keep the interface the same, whether mm -hmm. it's OpenGL or, or something right. like that. Mm -hmm. Same thing sort of is what started a lot of the virtual reality and the augmented reality breakthroughs. The algorithm suite around that sort of settled. It's portable. Oh, it's and got now settled. It's portable. Used to people, people. I, I did this at Qualcomm. I did. I helped with the Vuforia project, which okay. is now owned by PTC. Mm -hmm. And there, it, it used to be people thought they had to port this giant OpenCV library, and then they realized that a lot of AR and VR, there's a small set of algorithms that, if those were fast, you got all eighty percent of the mm -hmm. acceleration. And so we worked on optimizing that kind of stuff. I think you're gonna. We're gonna find that out in some of our IoT stuff. We're gonna find domains, for example, like vibration, where I might put together one of my edge sensors and actually have a DSP on board to do the vibration analysis at the edge, right, at very low power, and then ship the higher value signal back. But I might build that one specially, right? right? But I, but I, I have a program environment that can support that. Mm -hmm. So specific examples like the vibration sensor um, aside, do you see a lot of demands in the future? You know, is there an element of 
a future proofing where you have to give yourself some headroom where you foresee you know more and more demands on the edge or do you think that this this model is like is fairly stable for most of the use cases that you can foresee i think the model is right i think the the actual processor that we're using now we will outgrow in two years because people will come up with more and more complex things mm-hmm. but my belief is just like it happens in other domains that the hardware will, will give us more opportunity what i'm hoping is that instead of starting though then with choosing from 500 different m4 class processors out of eight chip manufacturers that are doing you know just the merchant chip mm-hmm. stuff that there'll be two or three really good iot chips and we will port our runtime onto that and we'll hmm. you know get get value from that what, what's your wish what's your feature wish list if there's anybody who's planning the product lines from uh microcontroller manufacturers listening yeah i don't know if it'll be micro there's a couple of interesting startups there's a couple in korea and india that were doing some interesting stuff or even just you know people who are designing chips and processors and stuff like what what is your yeah. ideal IoT, iot chip yeah, yeah. Uh, what peripherals well, what core and what what peripherals yeah. i'm definitely Definitely still happy with ARM and, and the Cortex family, and especially the newer ones. And I don't know the names well enough like I used to, so forgive me, but I know there are versions that are coming out with, with basically being able to do trusted boots. So one of the things that's missing right now in IoT is we can do a lot of security very well with you know hardware storage for uh, key material and so forth, but the low-power processors don't have trusted boot, and we would really like that. And so that's one of the things, and I think ARM is actually working on that. If they, I think they've already announced it. Hmm. Um, and there, um, and I, I think that I'm a big fan, and this this sort of comes from the other work that I did before. Um, I'm a big fan of heterogeneous computing, right? Their workloads that are really good for GPUs, their workloads that are really good for DSPs, their workloads that are really good for for um, von Neumann or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. ARM and Intel architectures. It's hard to call them RISC and CISC anymore because they're basically <laughs> yeah. basically all their you know their pipelines are pretty insane. Um, and complex. Um, so I think there are going to be better packagings of heterogeneous compute objects. Like there's a, there's a company in the South Bay that generally does a chip that sits between sensors. You know, people call these sensor hubs right now in mobile mm-hmm. phones, mm-hmm. that they basically do a lot of the low level logic at very low power. Like I think mm. the new iPhone has something like that. So in, in a mobile phone before going to the CPU. Right. So you don't wake up the CPU on every step or something mm-hmm. like right. that to use the sort of the fitness analogy. I think those things will get a little bit right now they're very tuned for the wearable and the mobile market and i think that there will be architectures i would like some of that for the iot market and we're looking at some of those chips and we're trying to figure out are they going to be good now they are designed a little bit more for functionality than for longest battery life so we're still a little bit on the edge on leakage current with them Mm -hmm. but that's what i would actually like i would like to be able to service low-level data and actually i want to make it so the scripting language can sort of program these programmable logical arrays or something like that to do very specific low-level kinds of signal processing and that's what i mean about we constrain the problem so we can say okay i I will allow you to do these kinds of ffts at a really low power and i'll take care of all the hair of that for you Mm -hmm. but you can design your algorithms a sequence of these building blocks these primitives Right, and that's what you know. That's that's why well, that's what I think of as a computer science approach. Is instead of worrying about, okay, I'm going to use this exact FPGA, and I'm going to co- I'm going to burn it this way, and and that's all I have. Mm-hmm. It's it's okay. I'm going to write an abstraction, and then I'm going to basically build a compiler tool chain a tool set for it, whether it's at runtime or or, or beforehand, and I'm going to exploit whatever I can out of the hardware. And then you get families of products, and you can say, okay. This helium-powered sensor is much better for vibration, but the battery only lasts a year. 
Whereas mm-hmm. this one that's good for temperature, it can make that battery last five years now. We're too young to sort of striate our products like that, mm-hmm. but, but the architecture allows for it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. There's all this abstraction that we've built up because we understand the kinds of things people are doing. I'm, I'm fascinated to watch how people are gonna build up the abstractions around um, voice recognition. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and what the interfaces of that are gonna be, but it's, it's, it's an identical or symmetrical well, funny, you problem. Can get, you can get accelerometers now that have, um, that have like register flags for like portrait or landscape. Right. So, so it has like pre predetermined things that you might want to sense using this accelerometer that it works out for you. Right, without transmitting and, the raw and data then, back. And then, like, and then you can plug that into whatever board yeah. that you want. So QuickLogic, it's, that's one of the companies that I was thinking of, and also in Vensense, they're both doing things like that. But they are tend to be very focused on the big volume market for them, which is mobiles. Yeah. We're trying to create that bigger market in the IoT space by, by basically, I, I don't want to say standardizing the hardware, but I want to say, I, I w- would like to say sort of, making it more common what the runtime is so that the hardware manufacturers don't have to think that they have to do everything from scratch you know right now the number of mobile phone chips that you can get is a lot less than it would have been 15 years ago because you just don't need that many different variants of it anymore right? mm-hmm. because the differences is in the, are in the software primarily and that's where the a lot of the value comes from. i'm not saying the chips aren't valuable because they are mm-hmm. right but they don't have to be 400 kinds of them anymore which yeah. they right. used to be right there and we're still there in the merchant chip market and IoT is sort of based on merchant chip. And I wouldn't be surprised if you asked for about the wish list. I mean, somebody is gonna design a really well-packaged SOC that will be perfect for these kinds of applications and they will take huge share. Yeah. So let's talk about programming languages for a bit. Um, curious about, about Lua. How did, you, how did you decide to, to use Lua as a scripting language? Um, well, I mean, we have some folks in our team, our CTO in particular, um, uh, Mark Nydam, um, it's a lot of experience with Lua. And Lua is, the great thing about Lua is it is designed to be embedded in other systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can be very careful about when you let it garbage collect and what, what you let it do. But at the same time, it gives you very powerful function, you know, even, you know, functional programming constructs you can layer on top of it. So you get that great blend of tiny size and, uh, and so forth. It, it was a debate between that and JavaScript, in all honesty. And the problem with JavaScript is there isn't a really good implementation of an embeddable JavaScript, plus the language itself Mm-hmm. Um, is really tough. So you can never run V8 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. we played around with a thing when we were doing all join at Qualcomm called, uh, there's a, a JavaScript engine called Duct Tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sort of like Lua and it was designed to be embedded in another system. And we used it to develop a very small uh, Wi-Fi SOC that ran all join and you could program it from by just sending it JavaScript. Um, that was cool. We thought about that and we bounced that around a lot. But in the end, what we wanted something that was very, very well supported. And, and, and there actually are a lot of Lua developers out there. People, hmm. people sort of roll their eyes, but it's in a lot of systems. Game, game developers use it pretty well. Game widely, developers right? and a lot, of, a lot of gaming engines do it. Um, I think um, it just came across another use of it where, where people use it like crazy. Oh, I think Cloudflare uses it, hmm. actually. Lua is actually in the iPhone as part of the manifest. Uh, um, or no uh, sort of rights ma- capabilities management. Interesting. Uh, I, th- I believe it's a Lua engine that does that. If I, if Mark will kill me if I get that story wrong, but <laughs> I believe that's one of the other examples. So it's one of those things where if you really need a tiny language, but you need a language, yeah, right. So you don't want to try to re- invent a parser and a, and a compiler and everything from scratch. It's a very active community, and so it fits the bill really well for the embedded systems. And it and for us, we can implement a pipeline-based approach. So for example, we could give you sort of a node red-like or a, or a, or a, a, a node.js kind of programming metaphor, all callbacks and everything like mm-hmm. that. 
but you really want to think of these flows of data so we can layer that on top and we expect some of the customers of of, of helium to actually build their own packages and even other people to sell packages for us you know, we're working with companies that just focus on analytics that will sell add-ons into the helium platform you can just check a box like you do on heroku mm -hmm. right now and just say i would like to add this kind of analytics you know this kind of anomaly detection and i'll pay this much for you know, you know for that so we're going to end up being a a marketplace for that stuff as well just to make it easy for people to and i keep coming back to this point build iot systems as fast as you can build cloud-based systems build the thing yeah. that you're trying to build and not worry about like which variant of spi or i2c that this particular sensor that you're trying to hook up is using right and and think about it as the data right and, yeah. and and you make it however you want like for example the light sensor we have in this in this new one it does rgb and and a clear value mm -hmm. The default script is just going to send the clear value because most people only care about relative intensity. They want to know are the lights on or the lights off. Yeah. If you want to know whether it's natural light or artificial huh. light, you can go in and change the, the Lewis script mm -hmm. to send more data. But most people, we decided, wouldn't do that by default. So mm -hmm. we haven't crippled the hardware. We haven't crippled the runtime. We've just said, let's let's do it. And we decided here's for some our default thing. For things yeah, and here's some blocks, and here's how you change those blocks. Yeah, so yeah. Part, part of that is that People just think, oh, it's just too hard to change as the ad. I'm going to have to go, you know, connect a wire to it because I can't do it over the air. Or, okay, I have to at least be in the same building. It's like, no, this is it's sort of like the transition that Enterprise Wi-Fi went through with, yeah. you know, Ruckus and Meraki and Aruba and those guys. All right, we now move on to our next segment, Click Spiral. This is where uh, each of us brings in a thing that's been occupying our browser tabs lately. Um, things where we've been hitting, you know, uh, Command T a lot and bringing them up. <laughs> and then finding hours gone. Uh, if you, the listener, have a click spiral that you want to send to us and that, uh, that will absorb David and me and that, that we can then inflict upon the rest of the listeners, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com and we'll uh, talk about it on a future episode of the podcast. So let's start with David. What's your, what's your click spiral this week? I recently learned that, um, well, I mean, I'm sure you guys are familiar with champagne is type of sparkly wine mm -hmm. that is notable for being produced in the Champagne region of France. And there are laws about whether or not wine can be labeled as Champagne if mm -hmm. it isn't produced in the Champagne region of France because they're very, they want to make sure that <clears throat> the economics there are protected. Um, but you'll notice that there are California Champagnes that are available. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they aren't sued into oblivion has to do with that the Senate never ratified the Treaty of Versailles after World War I. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Basically, they actually, France actually, after the war, inserted a, a clause, Article 275, which regulates the right to regional appellations in respect of wines or spirits. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they did this because they were concerned that the region of Champagne had actually been pretty well demolished during the war, and they wanted to, you know, prevent interlopers from coming in and moving in on their market that they had, in, you know, invented. Um, however, the uh, U.S. signed the Treaty of Versailles, but the Senate never ratified it to oppose Woodrow Wilson's move to found the League of Nations. This is all from a blog called knowledgenuts.com. It's fascinating. <laughs> um, so as a result, Americans don't get prosecuted for having champagne. Now, so in 2005, um, there were actually more discussions about this, and uh, the U.S. and the EU, EU, the U.S. and the EU were able to reach an agreement about wine restrictions and the deal that they came to was that you weren't allowed to label bottles in such a way unless your brand had already been using that naming convention. Hmm. So so brands like, you know, Andre and Cooks and Corbell are still allowed to call themselves Champagne. Huh. So it um, ended up just just 
being but, incredibly valuable for the incumbents. Yeah, I guess, but I guess they're not allowed to. Uh, you're not allowed to start a new champagne brand. I think. Huh. Yeah, you know, uh, when the uh, when the FDA started really cracking down on cigarette advertising, they got a remarkable amount of support from uh, Philip Morris, who owns the the Marlboro um, brand, right? Because the Marlboro brand is so much more familiar than every other cigarette mm-hmm. brand. That a moratorium on advertising was made it better because then they could just advertise Marlboros and they wouldn't need to advertise cigarettes. Is that what it was? Or no, that that there would be no more shifts in the market. They were already the leader, out. right? They oh, had already the leader. I right. see. Yeah, exactly. Any any oh. kind of any kind of advertising war involving cigarettes was only bad for Marlboro because it was already the market leader. And so this was basically a moratorium on all cigarette advertising, which was uh, you know essentially a way of like handing Marlboro continued uh, domination of the of the, of cigarette, the cigarette market, market. like the yellow flag on the racetrack. Now everybody hold your positions. You're not allowed <laughs> yeah. to spend any more yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It'd be like if you know no one could invent a new soft drink. That'd be great for. Coca-Cola and Pepsi, because they would just uh, the black would just the, keep, the, the black waters that. of American imperialism, as they refer to it on Boing Boing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's start exactly. with the champagne, though. Like, are we also trying to protect California now in the same way? I mean, are there things that we don't want to say? Nap. We don't want somebody in France producing a Napa right, wine. Right. So it's yeah, kind of interesting. Now we actually that is have true. It, it goes both ways now. Yeah. Much now as the French won't want to admit that. Now it's yeah. as valuable as French. I, uh, I can't imagine the French ever like trying to <laughs> trying to imitate Napa. <laughs> anything yeah all right john what do you got so if you if you spend much time walking around in the um in the hills and parks outside of san francisco you stumble upon a lot of uh you know retired military installations from a lot of different eras Uh, Mm -hmm. so the um the presidio in san francisco was a has been a fort since the late 18th century first under the spanish and then under mexico now under the under the u.s um and there are a lot of defenses you know built into the hillsides bunkers from kind of um, particularly the the uh, turn of the 20th century up through the World War II era, plus some some fun like Cold War stuff that you find if you go on a bike ride deeper into you know the Marin Headlands or or um, down on the peninsula. Uh, so I I, my, I got into these these click spirals related to the some of the coastal defenses that you find site by site in the Presidio and, and the Marin Headlands. Mm. And basically, what plays out is this uh, a, an, an arms race that was happening at, at an incredibly fast pace in the early 20th century. So, um, you know, the history of some particular bunker in the Presidio might be that this bunker held the world's largest cannon, which was built in response to the German commissioning of a giant battleship that had, um, you know, a 42-inch cannon. This is a 43-inch cannon capable of, of shooting a projectile 15 miles out into the ocean. And then it was decommissioned one year later because the Germans came up with a, <laughs> a 47-inch cannon that could operate from 17 miles, wow. at which point they built the bunker down to your right, which uh, has a 50-inch cannon and can go out you know, 20 miles. And this, this, this whole process, this like relentless back and forth and, and development of new uh, guns pointed out at the ocean came to a pretty abrupt stop uh, after, well, at the, at the end of World War II, um, or really in the middle of World War II, when everyone realized that it wasn't so much that boats were going to pull up outside of your harbor and fire cannons at you as that airplanes would come in. And then there was a period of, you know, relentless innovation in the um, late 40s and early 50s uh, and that resulted in Nike missiles, which you find around around the area and around a lot of big cities in the U.S., kind of rusted out 
you know, underground chambers and things behind chain link fences that are always weird to stumble across. Yeah. Um, and then the Nike missiles were themselves rendered obsolete in the, in the mid sixties and mostly removed by, by the mid seventies. Um, and, uh, because of the rise of, of ICBMs. So you're not going to just like, um, point a missile at a bomber that's, you know, slowly flying toward your, toward your big city. So this was, this was, you know, th this really fast kind of back and forth innovation and then suddenly a new technology came along that just wiped it all out. And, and all at once, coastal defense, for the first time in like the history of humanity, meant something other than having a weapon pointed out at the Outwards. ocean, getting mm -hmm. ready to like fire something heavy at, at a boat. Interesting. And a little terrifying. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I mean, it's, it's a, on, on the one hand, it is a uh, it is a privilege that that we all enjoy here to not constantly have to you know see a lot of weaponry and contemplate uh, yeah what that means what is hanging over us. On the other hand, you know American it's buried under the ground now. Yeah, American yeah. defense takes place in uh, you know missile silos in like Alaska and uh, and North Dakota. Yeah, in the Midwest and and in submarines that are under the ice caps. So it's it's. Um, much it's deadlier, true, big <laughs> less visible. Shift. There's a really good museum, um, I believe it's in Tucson, that's, that's the uh, Titan missile silo. That's mm -hmm. the, the last Titan missile silo that has not been filled in by cement and you know completely capped over. And they've turned it into a museum that's run by volunteers. And so you can actually hmm. go down inside of it and see everything. It's, it's really fascinating. Like the whole underground, whole underground complex is sprung on these big springs that are like several feet in diameter to to decouple the hallways and control mm. rooms and stuff from the shocks of nuclear warfare happening on the surface and wow. it has the whole you know full-on like two two keyholes across the room from each other yeah um kind of thing and yeah the, the sort of grit, gritty realism of the whole thing i mean they they have they have uh, procedure books that you know say like okay if you you know if, if nuclear warfare starts you know this is what you do and blah 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 and there's enough provisions for like three months and then like that's where it ends the, the, the procedures yeah <laughs> yeah yeah this is this click spiral is a bit of a downer sorry yeah, about yeah, that yeah no uh, i got, real, mine's that, gonna that, be a, I got real dark gonna, there yeah yeah, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna mine's not gonna hold up i don't think to the to those two but it's yeah it's different yeah so what is yours rob so um i tend to when i'm not working think a lot about food i like cooking like making and one of the things that happened is we recently moved up here to san francisco and my wife we hadn't brought a lot of stuff we still have a place down there and one of the things my wife makes is this cake that I really like, which is an old recipe from her family side, and she hadn't brought the recipe up. And it turns out it's this kind of cake that was, I think, really sort of depression era. It's a very simple cake. We always know it as the hot milk cake because you heat mm. the cup of milk, and there's some people call it a, I found out through this clicking. I went looking for the recipe for it, <laughs> and I started talking about hot milk cake, and it turns out it's also sometimes just called a one, two, three, four cake okay. because of the ingredients. And I can't remember which order it is, but it's basically between the butter... You know, it's like a stick of butter, two cups of sugar, three eggs, and you know, four cups of flour. Some some version of that. Mm -hmm. But the weirdest thing was that I one of the points where I clicked, I actually saw a picture of it, not just the cake itself, but made in the same kind of pan with a bun pan, which is my wife uh -huh, was making. Uh -huh. And so it was like, this is really odd. I did this search, and it looks like the piece of cake that has satin in front of before in the exact same shape. Uh -huh, uh -huh. It's one of those things that really surprises you. The internet when you think something is this almost 
proprietary to the family. Like, right, 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 getting right. the recipe from her mom was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Who had to get it from her grandmother because it was this recipe. Who like turned, read it on the back, printed on the back of the bag of flour. And right, was like, huh, that probably something good. like that. And, then, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it turns out to be my, you know, it's my favorite cake because it's no, there's no icing. It's basically a pound cake, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. But um, I, it was it was just funny what the internet returned for me on that one. So I spent yeah, yeah. quite a bit of time on that. It's like something out of a out of a um, statistics class. You know, what's the probability that you combine flour, butter, and sugar in the same ratio is like uh, someone else who's doing it right yeah. yeah um did you did you did you find anything related to like the the chemistry of it something anything what what makes it so satisfying um i don't think so why I mean, do you have to heat the milk it actually makes it rise better because there's um it's, it activates the baking soda i believe is hmm. what it does mm. um and it so you the batter goes into the oven hot so it's it rises faster huh. um so you scald the milk before you put it in there. And so I thought back about it in this historical context of you probably didn't have as hot an oven or you had maybe baking soda that wasn't as fresh or as mm-hmm. active. And these other techniques were to make you have that light cake. And we don't think about that stuff because we have super baking soda and super yeast and you know right, things right. like that. that Extremely the precise chemistry cooking of baking. instruments. And, and, and for me, it's a little fascinating because I am not a baker. I'm the opposite. I'm like the guy that is chopped. I'm yeah. happy to like you point me to a refrigerator and say go make dinner. I'm, I'll generally come up with something pretty good. Yeah. I can't bake because I won't follow recipes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm not good at that. <laughs> All right. Well, that that wraps up uh, Click Spiral. Uh, if you, the listener, have a, something you'd like to send in for us to talk about on a future episode of Click Spiral, just email us at hardware at o'reilly.com. We'll take a look and uh, we might talk about it in the future. Even if it has to do with global thermonuclear war. Even if it is a bit of a downer. Yeah. yeah. We like to do a downer and click <laughs> spiral from time sorry to time. Sorry my cake didn't explode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Um, this has been really great. Thank you very much for joining us, Rob. Um, if people want to find you and or Helium on the internet, how do they do it? Helium is easy. It's at helium and helium.com. And if you want to find me, I'm at Rob Chandok, C-H-A-N-D-H-O-K on Twitter. And uh, be happy to talk to you. Or Rob at Helium. Great. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank both of you. It was a great conversation. It's really, it's really fun to talk about these complex systems, this sort of conversationally. It works, it works really well for me. Well, I hope that some people who are listening to this in their cars got something out of their, out of their commute. This is really cool. Yes. That'd be awesome. Had a good time. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, Make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>